Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Experience the fun and excitement of Universal's Islands of Adventure, Universal Studios Florida, and Universal's Volcano Bay. Ooh, plus, when you stay at one of Universal Orlando's hotels, every morning you can breeze into one of three amazing theme parks an hour. Yes, an hour before other guests. No matter what time of year you visit Universal Orlando Resort, you'll find exciting events to make your vacation more epic. We here at Binge Mode visited Universal Orlando Resort last week, had a wonderful time. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Binge Mode is also brought to you by Miller Lite. There are a lot of disagreements in life, but one thing no one should debate, Miller Lite is the great tasting light beer. With only 96 calories, 3.2 grams of carbs, that's fewer calories and half the carbs of Bud Light. So there's really nothing more to talk about. If you have a real argument, let's hear it. But until then, stick with Miller Lite. Miller Lite. Hold true. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. And this episode of HP Extra live from the Wizarding World and Universal Orlando Resort. There's really not that much in the way of adult content, but I do and did execute various unforgettable curses <laughs> on numerous muggles around the park as soon as I was issued a wand. And by the way, I, I did, as they tell you, really mean it. <laughs> so if that's not the kind of thing you're into, please check out the press box. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know what it feels like when a dragon's hot breath touches mm. your skin, mm. feels great in the heat. Please proceed. With extreme caution. And now, binge mode. So he asks for something that would enable him to go forth from that place without being followed by death. And death, most unwillingly, handed over his own cloak of invisibility. Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yes. <laughs> I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. It's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Joining me today, now that he's finished greeting Creature at Dude. number 12, Grimald Place. Creature. Just kind of creeping at you from, yeah. the, from the window there. Just trying to see who's coming and hoping it's not serious Black. <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster. Jason Concepcion. Mal, the house elves need us. I know, Hermione keeps telling me that. And so do the listeners, because Binge Mode Harry Potter is happening right now, where we explore every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether your butterbeer preference leans cold or frozen, fudge or potted cream, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Five points or stars only for Binge Mode. Please. Stars only. Only. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, which is a great place to set a date for lunch at the Leaky Cauldron. Mm. That cauldron doth leak in real life. It does leak. It's very cool. It actually does leak. So far on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we've explored the Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets books and films. Next Monday, July 9th, we will be beginning our deep dive. Deep. Deep into Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Oh. Today, we are talking about the wizarding world of Harry Potter in our second episode of HP Extra, the episodes that we'll be dropping between the book and movie bundles, where we will be exploring all these other facets of the Harry Potter universe. And today, we are actually recording this from the wizarding world. We're at the Radio Broadcast Center at Universal Orlando Resort. It is Extremely humid here, but otherwise absolutely delightful. Yes. (laughs) And on today's show, we have a few things for you. We have a special edition of The Seven, where we will be discussing our seven favorite things from our time here at the Wizarding World. We will also be speaking to Eric Hunt, Senior Director, Creative Design, Universal Creative. Yes. And Michael Aiello, Senior Director, Entertainment, Creative Development. And we'll be talking to them about how they brought the magic to life. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always, while we'll primarily be talking about the Wizarding World Park and our experience here. 
We will still be going deep on details from all seven books, all eight deep. films, <laughs> and the wider Potter canon. Wide. <laughs> Taking the entire series into account from the moment entire. the butterbeer hits our lips. Oh, my God. And our bloodstream. I'm butterbeered out, guys. So pull on your robes. Put on some sunscreen. Because it's time to head to Hogsmeade and Diagon Alley. Mal. Yeah. Mistress would never forgive creature if the tapestries were thrown out. So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing in no particular order seven of our favorite things from our trip to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal Orlando Resort, because seven remains the most powerfully magic number. Number one, Ollivander's wand choosing and the interactive wands. This was really cool. We got to do a, this is mild flex right now. (laughs) Right off the top. Right off the top rope, we're going to give you a mild flex. We got to do like a private wand choosing with an incredibly adept Ollivander. Amazing. Just committed to being Ollivander. Truly. I'm sure they would tell us right now that that was Ollivander. Yeah. But man, he was about it. It was genuinely emotional. It was great. <laughs> and meaningful. Wands chose us. Yes. We got to test wands that did not choose us. So we got to feel for a moment what it was like to be Harry when, you know, the power that's right. coursing through Immense you. power. Too, too much. It can't be contained. There is no good and evil. There is only power in a yes. wand that cannot contain it. And guess what else? Tell me. Not only did wands choose us, we were chosen. That's right. By wands with twin cores. Our that's wands wonderful. have dragon heartstring cores. Mine's Ch- Birchwood. That's right. Jason's Mine's Reed. Is Reed. And they're amazing. And then after the wand chooses you, you get to walk around the park. And do unforgivable curses on random passersby. Yes, that's one approach. That's one potential choice that you can make. And we all know it is our choices. Another choice (laughs) you can make (laughs) is to test out the wand with some spell work. And the layout of the park includes... Numerous interactive window displays where you can practice different spells. There are these really handy but also subtle diagrams. So you feel a little bit like you're getting a lesson from a teacher, but also that you're getting to discover it on your own. What's Mm. the proper arm motion? How close do I stand? How do I enunciate? How many people are watching me embarrass myself right now? And there are also some of these displays that are not not really labeled, not really on the grid. A lot of Easter eggs throughout the park that you get to discover on your own great. or with the aid of some light Googling, really up to you. The wands are amazing. We kept them in our hands almost the entire time. And it's just wonderful. Makes you feel wonderful. like a wizard. It really does. Number two. The Escape from Gringotts. Gringotts Bank, of course. This is a real-life version of the events surrounding the famed heist and escape from Gringotts and Deathly Hallows. You do not have to ingest one of Bellatrix Lestrange's hairs before partaking Polyjuice in the escape like from Gringotts. trash anyway. It doesn't matter whose hair is in it. It's well, terrible. you know, Harry looked delicious, whereas Goyle tasted like cabbage. Ugh. So, great. Really varies person to person. Yes. One of the things that was so cool about this ride and the entire Gringotts experience is how different each element of it was and how many layers there were. So you get to just walk into Gringotts, into the hall. You get to look at the marble. You get to see the warning to would-be thieves etched into the wall. You get to go converse with a goblin at the money exchange. There's various other goblins arrayed around the room staring at you or not really looking at you, just kind of ignoring you as they go about their business of moving coin around. For McGonagall, for McGallion. It's purely McGonagall's work. <laughs> just just taking it from McGallion's yes. account into Ludo literal Bagman Bagman's account and then right back to the goblins who presumably they are, they are all in debt yes. to at this very moment because of their bad Quidditch bets. And then the ride itself, the Escape from Gringotts ride, is this fascinating balancing act between existing in the stories that we know from the books and the films and in a new dimension of it. So this is, as Jason just said, the escape from Gringotts after the Horcrux theft. And the part that you, as a participant on the ride, get to experience is a new perspective. You get to encounter Voldemort and Bellatrix and Nagini. You get to see and feel a security troll 
come up to you. And most importantly, most importantly of all, I think we can agree, you get a little AI ash in your life. Ooh, you get a lot of time with Bill Weasley, who, of course, is a Gringotts employee. We don't get a lot of chances in the books to see Bill doing his Gringotts work. And here he is in the vaults. I should say this is maybe a spoiler. I don't know. You get wet. There's some water. There's some water. You'll get wet. It's a visceral experience. It really is. It was thrilling. This was the ride where we got off and said, we need to do this again immediately. Yeah, it was great. And it was really great. some of it is the physicality of it is just genuinely, if you enjoy rides, really, truly very fun. And then there's the story element. Every bend, every turn, it also allows you to put yourself in Harry's heart and mind. Yes. When he's at Gringotts for the first time and he's describing the ride down to the vaults in the cart. It's described as like, he couldn't possibly see everything that he wanted to see in the way that he, you know, he thinks he sees a flame and he wonders if it's the dragon he heard yeah. about and he tries to turn his head. But by the time he does, it's already gone. That's what the ride feels like. You know, you're catching glimpses of vaults and treasures and spell work out of your peripheral vision. And sometimes it's right in front of your face. And then as soon as it's in front of your face, you swing in a different direction. When you want to go back and look, it's already time to think about something else. And it's just really cool. We loved it. And then when you go outside, the physical structure of Gringotts itself, it's leaning in the way that you would expect it right. to. The dragon's on top of it, breathing fire. Literally breathing fire. Number three, of course, the Hogwarts Express. It was great. You get to enter from King's Cross Station. It's a great depiction of a real place. It's quite convincing. There yeah. was a busker in the entrance that I was not clear if that was like a park employee or just a guy. Like, what was going on? Was that just a guy? I'm not sure. It was unclear. I don't know. That's a great question. London tourism ads, right. which I appreciate. Full immersion. Get to walk through the barrier. You get to walk through platform nine and three quarters. Jason walked in backwards doing the moonwalk. And you get to ride the Hogwarts Express between Hogsmeade and Diagon Alley. And you can take it in both directions. And the story that you get to watch playing out outside of your window is different in each direction. Yes. So you're getting to tap into different elements of the story depending on which path you're taking. And then it's not just the window. You also have these silhouettes, these shadows right. out in the corridor and they're giving you snippets of conversation. You get to see a chocolate frog you know, yes. sort of skitter up your door. You hear Ron chatting with Hermione, chatting with Harry, and you get these little elements of what it would be like to actually- it's really cool hear and feel the other students passing you by on the train. The trolley witch did not come by with her claws. Some Dementors did. Some Dementors came by. Which was unfortunate. Just being in the compartment. Yeah. There's just something about being in the compartment. Whenever I'm on a train in real life, I like to say to myself, man, this is cool because it allows me to pretend for a moment that I'm on the Hogwarts Express. And then we actually got to go on the Hogwarts Express and there are scenes of London and the Scottish countryside playing out in our window. You were leaning in a way that reminded me of Remus Lupin ah, taking a nap ah. in his compartment. And then, of course, because you're thorough and because you put safety and security first. I do. First thing you did. First thing you did before practicing your right. unforgivable so, curses. You checked the luggage racks up I just above. to make sure that there was no one up there with maybe, you know, uh, invisibility cloak just sitting up there listening to what we're talking about. That's been known to happen on that particular train. Would you have stomped a nose if you had discovered such I, an infiltrator? I would have stomped a nose and done a Petrificus Totalis and then just thrown the invisibility cloak over my dude or my dudette and just peaced. That's how I deal with things now. <laughs> now that I've seen number four. Number four. Nocturne Alley and then Borgen and Burks. The darkness is inside of Jason. <laughs> the darkness is really inside of us all. They never should have given me a wand, I'll tell you that. <laughs> they definitely should not have given you a wand and then let you into Borgen and Burks. The thing I realized... In Borgen and Burks, Nocturnale. True revelation for Jason. It really is that, was. Uh, you know, the bad guys just have great branding. <laughs> this is across stories. It's like when you watch Star Wars, who has the cooler uniforms? Han aside, you would not call what Han has a uniform. He's just got like cool jackets that he wears. Right. Lando, same thing. He's is just, sexiness a uniform? Right. You know? It's just dudes that dress great. <laughs> who has like the best official uniforms? The Empire. And it's kind of like that when you walk into Bergen and Burks, I understood the appeal. Like everything is like, they had like the skulls and all the like the dark marks, a lot of snake iconography. And you're like, you know what? If I was a, a surly 13 year old, I get the appeal. It's like, do I want to like dress in like whack robes? Or do I want to walk into Bergen and Burks and be like, yeah, I'm fucking evil. <laughs> 
It was really cool in Nocturne Alley. Listen, I wouldn't say you're evil. I'd say that the world is not divided into good people and death eaters. You know, if I can quote our main dude, Sirius Black. That's right. And I did buy a Have You Seen This Wizard shirt featuring Sirius Black in Borgen and Burks. I gave them my my coin. I gave them my hard-earned galleons. Nocturne Alley in general had a certain tone about it that was, I have to say, surprisingly chill. It's like It seemed like a great place to hang. Like, I would buy flesh-eating slug repellent in there. It reminds me, it's kind of like, now it's nothing like Vegas, but it's got that kind of, (laughs) it's got that kind of, this is bad, but you want it. You want to be here. Right. This is kind of bad, but is it that bad? Why don't you hang around and find out? It's bad, but it feels good. It feels good. One of the things that was so... So cool about Borgen and Burks in particular is you got to look at and actually engage with some of the props that not only magically yeah. compelling elements in the story, but are crucial plot elements. So we got to see the hand of glory. We got to gaze upon the cursed opal necklace. How many muggle yes. lives has it claimed at this point? How many poor muggles has it claimed here in Orlando? And then I thought best of all. The vanishing cabinet. There is a full vanishing cabinet. It is amazing to gaze upon it and you can kind of you put your hand on it, you put your ear against it, and you can hear the bird <laughs> chirping. You can hear Draco's innocence melting away and his Draco. soul crumbling. He's never innocent. It is my mercy, not All yours. Should be in the Azkaban, the entire Malfoy family, including Malfoy's child should be thrown in Azkaban. I throw the whole family in Azkaban. You keep Scorpius's name out of your mouth. I'm tired of this whole family. They've caused so much trouble in our lives. Number five. Oh, God. I don't want to talk about number five, but let's talk about it. Listen, I'm, you're it, in, I'm you're, you're in right the now. throes of the sugar high right now, but pull yourself out of it. Try to I can't. Just find the perspective of a man who isn't in a coma right now. And let's talk about some butter beer. There there oh my gosh, so good. There are six different kinds of butterbeer here at the park. However, it is not the season for the warm butterbeer. I dare you to drink the warm butterbeer when it's 98 degrees out and humid. I dare any human being. I wonder if it's cooler than the air. <laughs> I'll tell you what. So the butterbeer, what does it taste like? So we had five. Five different types. I chugged two butterbeers you chugged, for the content. You chugged both the cold and you attempted to chug the frozen. Frozen was too, it was too congealed to fully chug. I think which the I think sign, was for the best. I think the sign that you're not supposed to chug it is when they give you the straw yeah. for that one. So there's cold, there's frozen, there's soft serve ice cream. Which is good. Soft serve ice cream is just good. Delicious. Ice cream is good. At Florian Fortescue's. In any, in any format. You get to go if you want to go to Florian Fortescue's ice right. cream parlor. Delightful in there. Delightful. Lovely signage. Lovely color scheme in there. It's good. Potted cream and fudge. Butterbeer fudge. So we did a taste test of all five of those. And guess what? All five of them are delicious. Yeah, I prefer the frozen to the regular. But as I said, the regular is the one I chugged. Delicious. I feel terrible right now. All of them are great. I feel full of life and possibility, and I certainly feel full of butterbeer. My favorite was the cold, I think, yeah. though I really enjoyed them all, and I, I was truly delighted, truly delighted by the ice cream. Also, just worth saying, we both really enjoyed the pumpkin juice. Pumpkin juice was good, very refreshing. We also, in saying that we enjoyed the pumpkin juice, were treated to one of the worst takes we've ever heard, which was Isaac <laughs> Ice Lee saying pumpkins are bad. I don't understand that one. Number six. Yes. Let's talk about some sweet, sweet merch. The because swag. Guess what? There's a lot of incredible merch, and we bought almost all of it. They know their marks. When you show up at the Wizarding World, they know they have you. You will be buying the robes. You will be buying the wands. You will be buying the time turner. You will be buying the magnetic house branded bookmarks. Oh, yeah. Bought it all, baby. Oh, yeah. Just a little glimpse. Jason and I bought so much merch that we were not able to fit it in our suitcases and we have to ship. I bought a normal amount of merch. Let me just say that. (laughs) I bought like the normal amount that you would buy. I bought a book. I bought a bookmark. I bought like a couple other things, little trinkets here and there. You bought a truly ridiculous amount of shit. The receipt for your items. (laughs) That, yeah. Is the length of Nagini. (laughs) 
And I don't even think that I'm, I'm not even joking though. So what was the tougher moment when I showed you guys my Honeydukes receipt and it was taller than the astronomy tower or when in an effort to find the Honeydukes receipt, I pulled out of my bag. It was basically like Hermione in Deathly Hallows when she has the magically extended bag. Yeah. And every time she needs something, she has to pull out 40 other items first. And that right. was how many receipts I pulled out of my bag. It was disturbing. Listen, I feel great. Among sure. the cherished new possessions that we both have, yes. we got robes. The robes we are great. We have Ravenclaw robes. You the- wore these to scare children. No, I wore them to wear them. If the children are scared, <laughs> that's their issue. <laughs> you did your best impersonation of when... Malfoy and his goons are impersonating Dementors to scare Harry during Quidditch. I did do that. (laughs) I think I mildly look like Quirrell when he's like stalking through the woods, like lapping up the blood of the unicorns. Oh, if only you had taken flight. Did you have any garlic in your turban? No, I did not. Moldy turban. Was Voldemort helping you teach Defense Against the Dark Arts? No, he was not. In school? He doesn't help me that explicitly anymore. (laughs) And finally. Yes. Number seven, and really in a way, we're cheating because everything falls under this umbrella, which is the magic of it. There is something that is truly hard to describe about actually crossing the threshold, walking in, looking up, and seeing Hogwarts, walking through Diagon Alley, walking through Hogsmeade, walking in to Honeydukes, and smelling the sugar, seeing the confections all around you. It's as immersive and captivating as it can be. And when you read these stories and you love them the way you do, you transport yourself there into those places every day in your mind. And to get to actually stand there and feel it around you and look at it and touch it yeah. is special. Yeah, the way Diagon like opens in front of you and the the way the buildings look and the angles, it is really, really perfect. And also like the just the small details. Like everywhere you yes. look, as close as you want to look, Everything about it is very convincing. Like there's like these windows and back alleys where there's really interesting things going on, pots and pans being washed right. by themselves, like magical things going on in each of these windows. It's really, really fun. The phone booth, for example, mm. in the London area where you can enter King's Cross to board the Hogwarts Express, if you go into this phone booth and you dial magic, That's right. you can pretend for a moment that you're Harry Potter on a rescue mission, things like that. Grimald Place. This was actually quietly one of our favorites. Creech, my dude Creech. Just creeping at the window, peeking, looking for Mistress Creature. Buddy, we got bad news for you. Yeah. She's dead. Let me say one thing. Magic, one of the worst passwords ever created. (laughs) Why not just do one, two, three, four? It's their version of password being the password. (laughs) What about Cornelius Corny Fudge and his regime ever led you to believe that he would have come up with something better than that? Awful. I just like Green Bowler with the backup. I think it's notable that the common rooms at Hogwarts have like better password protection than the Ministry of Magic. They change the passwords there all the time. Well, be they have to because of Neville, you know, keeps leaving them, leaving them all over the castle. Right. And when literal murderers like scabbers can sleep in the bed of uh, someone in the dorm, you know, what good is a password really? I wonder how Voldemort infiltrated the ministry. I don't know. He just went up and was like, what do you think the password is? Uh, magic? <laughs> could it be magic? Let me just dial the first thing I think and see, of. Yeah, let's see what happens. The nighttime lights at Hogwarts. This That's was actually the first thing we saw. We arrived in the evening and we weren't sure exactly how long it was going to be, what to expect. And the second that you realize it's happening, there it is, Ravenclaw. And the balance of the houses, everybody getting equal time. It's a beautiful gesture. Yeah. Transition from the individual house elements to the Hogwarts crest, a sign of unity, maybe? These lights blending together. Do we sort too soon? Do we sort too soon? I think we do. So we've we've already ruled on this. Yes, we sort too soon. (laughs) The night bus? Night bus was fun. Truly fabulous. You speak to the head, the shrunken head. That's right. And the shrunken head says delightful things to you and answers whatever questions you have. We grilled the conductor of the night bus about the alleged status of Stan. Stan as possibly being a Death Eater. I'm not even saying, but he is a Death He's flying with Death Eaters. What more do you need? Look, you know. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Are you flying with Death Eaters? Listen, listen. 
you gotta test out whether Harry is gonna lean on his one true love, Expelliarmus, in midair battle. How else will you know? I just love that Harry is willing to like sectum sempra his friends, but like won't <laughs> do it to an actual Death Eater. Well, would we call Draco his friend? He's a classmate. <laughs> and then he here's a, a guy that's tr- literally trying to kill you in the sky. Thinking of sectum sempra and Draco makes me think of Myrtle naturally. And yeah. if you use a certain facility, a certain bathroom, you can hear Myrtle wail at you. As Hermione would say. Oh my God. You know? It's like, shut up. Hard, hard to have a pee while she's wailing it at is you. Ex- it is. It was. I got to say, it was. <laughs> I peed about 15 because, uh, you know, you got to hydrate. A lot, lot of hydration. Hot. You got to hydrate. So I was peeing a lot in that bathroom. <laughs> and I was like, Jesus Christ, God. <gasps> so let me go number one in peace, please. No sign of urn on the night bus, by the way, out having a smoke break, yes, I think. true. So that was our seven favorite things from the Wizarding World and Universal Orlando Resorts. And now we're going to talk to our guests, Eric Hunt and Mike Aiello. Joining us now, Eric Hunt, Senior Director, Creative yeah. Design, Universal Creative. Thank you so much for being here with us, sparing yeah. a few moments of your time for the binge heads. Just to start. To open up, can we sort of help familiarize the listeners by giving a quick snapshot of all of the work that you do here? Oh, my goodness. Well, thanks for having me, first off. And, um, Our pleasure. I'm certainly envious of the weather in L.A. that I just <laughs> left. Um, a little bit about me. I've been with Universal Creative for 15 years and have had the privilege to work on a lot of great things. Most noticeably is Daikon Alley and Hogsmeade Village and my baby Hogwarts. We ah. were the first ones here. And although we're global, we have them in three locations uh, across the world. I had the privilege to work on Hogwarts several years ago now. A little bit more about me. I've worked on many of our attractions, including Transformers. Transformers attraction is in three locations across the globe. And then here, I provided more of creative oversight because Mm -hmm. at that time, we had certainly since concluded uh, Hogsmeade, and then I was asked to take on Harry Potter and the Mm -hmm. Escape from Gringotts. So that was my baby as well. So I've done a lot of cool things, and those are my most notable ones. What I do now is more creative oversight for all of our portfolios. So I oversee a lot of our things that are in production. Awesome. Wow. So you've talked about, I uh, mentioned some of the various IP that you deal with here at Universal, specifically for the Wizarding World. It's the physical manifestation of what has been in so many people's imaginations for really a lot of years. Talk about that responsibility and, and bringing that to life. Well, you know, when you first hear about the opportunity, and I can recall very distinctly when I was working on another attraction and then we're told that uh, we were shifting gears and we were going to work on The Wizarding World, I first tried to remember what it was. And I says, I do recall the books. And, and I, <laughs> although I didn't get to read all the books, I quickly had to start reading books and gain a bit of knowledge about it. And I quickly realized the huge, huge responsibility we yeah. had to all the fans out there and all the great work that JK has done. And so we saw it as a great opportunity. We knew there was a lot of great content out there, but at the same time, we thought it was going to be a thrilling prospect for us to be able to move forward with this and be faithful to what we believe that most of our guests were expecting. You mentioned JK Rowling, the the legend. How much input did she have? What was the process of collaborating with her on these parks like? She has been very, very heavily involved, and she still is involved to this date. She really understands what our mission was, and um, she has been faithful in responding when she can, and she has had a lot of creative oversight and insight on what we had planned to do, what we have done, and um, how we are also maintaining our attractions Mm -hmm. and our lands throughout all of our parks. So she's heavily involved with our partnership with Warner Brothers and our network that we use to communicate with her. It's a great relationship. I don't get to speak to her specifically (laughs) or directly, but I have- You don't have a flu network connection (laughs) right into her living room fireplace? Usually it's a send button, and then that button is pressed, and someone (laughs) else gets it, and then she gets it. So- uh, are there any examples maybe that are particularly like emblematic of something where she said, oh, you know, I think really this is the way that I've seen this in my mind or the way that this would be the best experience for people who care about this story? I would say it'd be the butterbeer. Oh, ooh, okay. <laughs> yeah, she was certainly involved in that selection because the butterbeer was something that had only been thought about described, envisioned, and how do you envision something like that when you've never tasted it? Mm -hmm. And so uh, she was very instrumental in creating that product by approvals, taste testing, and and the likes. So that was one for us that said, wow, she was 
so engage in this. And it is a very popular piece out in our lands. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the layout in terms of what goes where. How do you decide when building an attraction like this, where to put stuff, how to balance creating something that is, as we said, the representation of what fans expect with that kind of reality of we got to move bodies through this thing at a clip. It's a very involved process that normally starts with working with our partners and our parks, Mm -hmm. because although this is a destination for our guests, it is also a living, breathing machine that has to flow. It has to function. It has to serve the purpose of guests, and it also has to be safe. With a project this daunting, it starts early, and, and it's a lot of work working with our IP partners, understanding the volume and what we're wanting to put within our parks, and a lot of back and forth with our operations team, tech services team, wardrobe, merchandise. And all of those have to be facilitated with buildings as well. So it's not just the footprint of the attractions in the land. It's more of the back-of-house structures and such. So it's a lot of back and forth, a lot of collaboration, certainly a lot of collaborations with our IP partners. In terms of the wider Harry Potter canon, we've, you know, we've talked about the books and the responsibility of helping people bring something that had been in their heads you know, to their, their eyeballs, literally in front of their faces. What about the movies? Because obviously there had been a visual template established already. How much is the art design of the movies a guideline versus like, okay, this is this thing that people have seen and this is what it looked like in the films. And so that's what it's going to look like here. Uh, Part of the reason that we're curious about that is because the visual template of the films changed across movies. And so there's presumably some flexibility that would stem from that. Well, it's a good question because... With the movies, it does create a bit of an expectation. Mm -hmm. They take the words from the books, and then there's an adaptation, and then there's with the uh, script writers and such with the movies. The biggest benefit about the movies that helped us, and it helps us to be conscious of what this world looks like from a perspective, is in working with the film groups, and most importantly with Stuart Craig, the production Mm -hmm. designer of the films. I've had the privilege to be able to work beside him and and understand his vision and what created look that he provided to the world. And he has been certainly instrumental in working really closely with J.K. because she even has her own visual mm. reference and ideas about how things are to look. And right. so... Yeah, she's an artist. She has all those she doodles is an artist and sketches. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Love that I got my hand on a few of those doodles. But, uh, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> uh, but again, having the films in place for when we started was so important because not only were we able to take advantage of Stuart Craig's vision, we were also able to take advantage of the usage of his artists and designers. We mm-hmm. collaborated with them, they collaborated with our designers here, and it became a great marriage, not only for what we had done for both Hogsmeade and Hogwarts, but certainly for Gringotts and Diagon Alley and all the great shops. And everything that you see out there is really true and faithful to what was created in the films. There was also a partnership that it was some reverse design. There are things that are in our parks mm-hmm. that inspired the movie. And Stuart also really? massaged the design of the sets that are in some what's, of the more what's recent What's an example films. of that? I would say, uh, far as the Owry is concerned, mm. oh. and, and the area down through Hogsmeade where three brooms and those areas are, he made some modifications within the film to adapt to what he had done for our park here. Wow. Yeah, it's cool wow. stuff. Specifically for the Escape from Gringotts attraction, which is fantastic. We loved it. Thank um, you. <laughs> oh, man. It, it strikes we got me as, right back on a second time. It strikes me as like the twin philosophies that are important when creating something like this are immersion and interactivity. You come to a place like this, you want to feel like you're in the world. And when you're in the world, you want to feel like you can touch the things. You can talk to people. How did you generate that specifically for Gringotts? Like one of the things I loved about it is you have to wait in line, get there. But there's stuff to look at. You can talk to the goblins. There's characters from the stories that are speaking to you. How do you decide how to do that, where to do that, where to place things. Are you thinking, here's 20 feet where if you're here, you need something to look at? Like, do you think about it at that granular level? Oh, absolutely. The only thing that we're bounded by is the footprint of the space we have to work with. Mm. And when we're designing, our approach is that we have to look at this as the actor or actresses on stage. And then we become the guest as well. What is the expectation? You have to you have to set the expectations internally so you know where your focus and your goals are. And to get real granular, for example, you also have to be as the characters are in a way. Case in point, when I were working on Gringotts, 
I call them my babies, and that's the goblins inside yeah. the Banks Hall. And I remember back when we first started on what's the idea of a goblin and how does he do his daily duties along the day of working through a bank? What is his actions? How does he move? Is he monotonous? Is, is it somewhat unique? So what I did, I got in front of a video camera and I just recorded myself as if I were a goblin. <laughs> wow. I did. And then... <laughs> As silly as it sounded. Did you assume a specific persona where you're like, I'm grip hook now? <laughs> yeah, yeah you, have your to, sword. you have to really be an actor. And yeah. you have to start there with, with really nothing but you and the camera because the goblins that are in our bank are really unique because we picked most of their looks that had never been seen on camera in the yeah. films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of those you've not seen before until you came to Green Guts. And so to get even more granular, when we were designing their wardrobe and their uh, suits, every bit of the uh, fabric I hand-selected, and they're all Italian-made, real real oh. suits that were yeah. made by a great seamstress up north in New York. And they did a wonderful job. All the sculpts and the looks of the characters down to their teeth were all just done by hand and sculpt digitally and made in through molds. And it's a, it's a huge, huge process. So they become, like I said, your babies all the way down to the bank manager. And then you have the goblin at the money exchange. Same process. I'm glad you brought up the goblin <laughs> at the money exchange. That's a great example of the interactivity we were talking about. We, we went, Mallory was able to converse with the fine gentleman. Not a fan of mine. Yeah, he was. <laughs> I think he felt uh, my questioning style was a touch abrasive. But. Yeah. So how does interactivity inform the design process and how do you create that with the underlying technology that you have? Like that's really was one of the coolest things we saw was just having a conversation with the thing. Yeah. Well, again, it's a collaboration and it starts all the way back again with the film group because yeah. they had too created goblins in their family. We wanted to be true to what they have done, but also bring some uniqueness to what we wanted to do. And then with the approval through JK, creation of a new character was certainly important so that Ooh. we start off on the right foot. And then working again with our partners from engineers to actors and to technicians, it, it's a huge, huge process to do what the bank, ma- uh, not only the bank manager, but the, the money exchange in particular, as you, as you question. Because you just mentioned the idea of the unseen and creating something new to bring the park visitors into the unseen, I think one of the things that we thought was so cool and like all immersive about the Gringotts experience is that you are participating in a story that is very familiar to you as a fan of, of, of Harry Potter, but a part of it that you've never seen. So what was the process like for developing that aspect of it? That's a loaded question because the process, part of that process is with many, many mock-ups, mm-hmm. a lot of story writing, a lot of back and forth with the collaboration of not only how does that sound from a story perspective, how does that look? What is that roadmap? What is the environment? A lot of the office corridor after you pass the bank manager's mm-hmm. desk mm-hmm. is all brand new. It's never been seen in the films. That's all been designed by our internal team and with uh, Stuart Craig's supervision. The process is lengthy. It certainly is fun. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, as you can see, as our guests see it every day, it's, it's, it's very rewarding to see oh, that absolutely. the process works. <laughs> what about more generally with just the technology and where we are? You know, it's, it's 2018. Obviously, the park has existed for a few years. How does the technology of the moment inform not only what you guys are able to execute, but what you even allow yourselves to conceptualize. You know, how much of it is, we're going to think of an idea and then we're going to figure out a way to do it. And how much of it is, here's what's realistic, here's what's possible. And obviously the park, much like a film, has a combination of practical effects and animations and various other executions. So how does what is possible tech-wise lead to what we see before us today? Anything's possible as long as the idea is conveyed in a manner that gets everyone behind it. Mm-hmm. Because in, in our perspective, it, it is all about the idea. You know, you think about the idea and the story you want to tell. You know, really, really strong stories, as an example of what JK has provided us over the years. Anything's possible, and you just continue to focus on the ideas and the stories, and then you get everyone else on board with it, and all the creative juices start flowing, and before you know it, you're in the middle of mock-ups, and you look back and says, man, that was the craziest idea at that time. 
and then look at it today. So we we have to push ourselves. We're in a we're in a society now where technology does challenge us. You know, we, yeah, we right. have to be able to get our guests, young and old, off their chairs, out of their homes, away mm-hmm. from That's their it. devices, and and give them something that they can't go buy at their local store or look right. at on their phones and, and and their computers. That's a great point because I think one of the things with was talking about immersion interactivity is that's a primary aim of like the video game space, which is something you want to pull people out of when you bring them here. You talked about the various locations that you have. How do you create that continuity of experience across different locations? And then how much does the particular culture of a particular city inform what you do there? And how much does, uh, you know, the footprint that you have, like, obviously, you don't have the same space that you have in Orlando, that maybe you have someplace else. So how do you pick and choose how to create those experiences? So there's continuity across different locations. First off, it's with careful planning to certainly preserve what we've already created, because many guests, when they first came to Hogwarts and Hogsmeade, and then heard that there was going to be another in another location, just like the books and the movies, it defined an expectation Creating that continuity also meant that we were going to bring our teams together again and work on those as we could. And that also included our partners with Warner Brothers and Stuart Craig, because there are also nuances in those other parks. There are things that are a little right. different yeah. in Hollywood that's not here. Things a little different in Japan. No humidity. No humidity is the, <laughs> the key difference. Yeah, in- <laughs> yeah, although I will tell you, I didn't believe it until I went there myself. It does get really, really hot in Japan in the summer. Really, yeah. really uh, hot. You were talking about that yesterday. Yeah, it's yeah. it's subtropical. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hoping that answers the question as far as mm-hmm. continuity. It's, it's important that we have the folks that have helped us along the way through these many years to create that continuity and that experience and those lessons learned and also take the opportunities to approve upon. And far as where the uh, cultural environments or the site specifics are, we make the adjustments and adaptations based on you know what the boundaries are, whether it's the local code or whether it's the footprint that we're given. And we think we've done a really good job with pulling that off and and creating an immersive experience, no matter where you are, where you want to travel. If you decide to do all three, then great. You'll still have something to take away that's uniquely <laughs> right. different for each. So because there are those unique elements and there are those the, the, that sort of balance of, on the one hand, continuity, and on the other hand, kind of the local flair and flavor, is there like a one clear unanimous, this is everybody's favorite thing? Like this is the clear winner? Or is it different in LA? Is there a most popular attraction there that is different here because Diagon Alley is here? Or do you guys kind of hear, you know, everybody saying, ah, oh, I got I just butterbeer, more butterbeer. <laughs> I think that's a good, that's a good example. Yeah, butterbeer is good in all three locations. <laughs> I believe that the show and the storytelling and the immersion and the emotional connection that you have at any of these locations are equally the same. Therefore, I think that uh, there's not one bit that's better or lesser than. I think each guest takes away something that's unique to them that they may keep personal. They may want to speak openly about it, but I feel that with that expectation that we've done, we've done a really great job in, in delivering on that message. That's beautiful. My favorite was when my wand chose me. <laughs> yes. And Gringotts. Those are great. Yeah, yeah. The wands are great. They're a great <laughs> add to also preserve the illusion and the belief that you're a wizard. Yes. I personally genuinely love to live in an illusion. Yeah. And then you can <laughs> practice your witchcraft here <laughs> yeah. and, and, and take your wands abroad. So that's the great thing is with the wand magic is that you can take your wand with you. And you can enjoy that experience in oh, unique cool. ways in each park. Because there are also those nuggets that are different as far as the one experience in each of the three parks. Right, different Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Eric Hunt, Senior Director of Creative Design, Universal Creative. Thank you so much. Hey, thank guys, you. thank you. Thank you for the invite. It's good to always refer back and think about our baby out there. Ah. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. You bet. Now we're joined by Michael Aiello, Senior Director, Entertainment Creative Development. It is Michael's birthday. Mike, thanks for joining us, and happy birthday. Hey, thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Good, good to talk to you. Happy birthday. So you have, um, Thank you. You have a pretty extensive and wild background. You started at Universal as a summertime employee, worked your way up. Kind of familiarize listeners with what it is you do now, and then we'll talk about how you, how you came sure. to this, this job. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I started 22 years ago, almost 23 years ago now with with, with Universal. It was a yeah summer summertime gig that uh, I'm still doing, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I started in ride and show, just working the rides, working at Jaws, 
kind of clicking people into the ride. And over these last 23 years, of, I've been a performer. I've written shows for the park. And now the last, uh, about last four and a half years, actually, I lead the creative development team for entertainment for Universal. So what that means is our team is responsible for all of the live entertainment that exists in, in all the theme parks and, wow. and in the resort itself, as well as a lot of the, the seasonal events that we produce, all of our holiday initiatives, Halloween Horror Nights, huge initiative that we create that I lead the team with. And then a part of that, the really cool thing about this gig is when new attractions open or new lands open within the park, we're brought in to fill those environments with live entertainment applications. I've had the, the, the awesome honor of being on the front end of leading the creative on all of the, the Harry Potter entertainment for the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. And it's been awesome. It is the, one of the coolest gigs ever. So I'm really interested in, you hear these stories about people who work their way up from the mailroom to become the, yeah. you know, whatever, an executive at a company. It's one thing to show a capacity for hard work when you're greeting people at the entrance to an attraction. But how do you then mm -hmm. look around you when you're doing that job and say, okay, here's how I get to this other place. How do you pursue yeah. the training and the education necessary to actually do that? Yeah, well, the ironic thing about a lot of people that, that I get to work with that, and also people that helped me along the way is everybody's entrance into this field was very different. Like, there isn't one defined path. Mm. For me, it, uh, it really started with becoming a, a performer in the parks. I, I really wanted to be an actor in my 20s. I was the Blues Brother, and I was the Grinch. Uh, I did pretty much, <laughs> wow. uh, pretty much every, every lecture that wasn't stunt related. Cause I, I'm not a stunt man. I'm not that coordinated, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but, uh, I really became passionate about being on the stage and, and also in the rehearsal processes of these shows going up, I, I was kind of a sponge really paying attention, not only to what I was responsible for, but also what was kind of happening around me, watching the show directors at that time direct the performers, watching them interact with the technicians, talking with technicians on how they were producing the shows, and then really just getting to know how they were constructed just led me to start talking to people about how these things kind of form. And then I started writing my own treatments, and anybody that was willing to read it or listen to me do a pitch, I would get in front of. I was able to get the ear of a couple show directors and show them some of my writing and show them some drawings of some layouts of rooms that I had done. And, and it really started small and it just grew and grew. And, and then uh, there was a meeting about the first initial stage of the Wizarding World, Hogsmeade. Mm -hmm. And that was a whole new doorway that kind of opened up for me because I kind of rose my hand in the air and said, hey, I've, I've read those books. I know the movies. Could I write a couple concepts? And they said yes. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. So you've mentioned your passion for performing, your passion for actually writing and, and, and conceptualizing story executions mm -hmm. and your passion for Harry Potter. So regarding the entertainment elements that you have been able to conceive and execute for the Wizarding World, we're really curious to hear a little bit about how you've found that sweet spot, that balance between the existing canon, you know, the IP that mm -hmm. is there to call upon and what seems like a lot of runway to really try to create something new that people who are visiting the park, it's going to be totally fresh for them that they haven't seen before. And, you know, for example, we get a taste of Celestina in the books, but that's mm -hmm. mostly, you know, through the lens of Mrs. Weasley's fandom, and it's a very contained experience. And then here you get to create the entire thing. You get to actually compose a musical act. So how much of, of what you're doing here for the Wizarding World Entertainment Elements is about honoring the spirit of the text and what we get of those elements in the text and how much of it is about being able to just craft something entirely new. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and you're absolutely right in saying there, there are two sides of that coin. Those two buckets need to be filled equally mm -hmm. with something like Hogsmeade. When that was being created, it was the first time Warner Brothers and frankly, the, the Blair partnership, the first time a lot of these things were existing in a theme park sense. It's never been done before. Right. So as we got a sense of what the Hogsmeade environments were going to be, what the ride attraction storyline was going to be, it really was us throwing ideas at Warner Brothers and really getting a sense of what was there. I remember the first couple of meetings was really trying to get a gauge of what did they think in their heads an entertainment idea might be. Mm -hmm. um, for us, it was more about educating them on what we know works from a theme park sense, even if it wasn't Harry Potter. Like right. what, what types of shows mm -hmm. do we know automatically engage an audience, no matter the subject? An audience that, that's distracted by 50,000 other things at any given moment, too. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So for Hotspeed, knowing what an open area it is, what I knew we, we needed in that land was something that could capture an attention, but also be very concentrated as well. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll notice a lot of the entertainment in both lands doesn't exceed 10 or 12 minutes. We, oh, we, want, we want these right. things to be concentrated, have a big impact, and be able to allow the guests to move on with their time in that land. One thing that we knew automatically that always works is is something that's musically based, um, whether it's a musical show or something rooted in musicality. So you'll notice in Hogsmeade, and even looking at the fiction, when we were reading the books, watching the films, one thing we wanted to do was tr- consciously trying to find the things that we knew we could expand on that may have been a glimpse in the films or a glimpse in the books. And right. you, you kind of see a pattern between Hogsmeade and Diagon where we've done that. So the first step was educating Warner Brothers in what we felt in these types of areas would be the most impactful. And, and for us, for Hogsmeade, it definitely was anything rooted in music. Now, you shift over to Diagon. The funny story about the Celestina show is Great originally show. when we were producing all the entertainment for Diagon, we had the show based on Tales of Beetle the Bard. And for the first year of development leading into the opening, that was the one show we were producing. And then in January, January of the year that we opened, it was asked of us to take on the same template we have in Hogsmeade. Let's do two shows that can alternate. Right. So very quickly, we had to come up with a second show and we had very little time to produce it. So immediately went back to the fiction. That's the anchor. It's going back to J.K. Rowling's words and and really combing that fiction. And I had always known about the one line in Chamber of Secrets relating to Molly Weasley's fandom of this singer, Celestina Warbeck. Yes. And it was going back to Warner Brothers and saying, hey, I know this singer exists in the Wizarding World. And I I know that there's, I think in the fiction, they call out two songs in the fiction. And I asked if there were any other songs, and they said they think they are, but they would have to search where they were. So I didn't know it existed when the films were out, but there was a fan club that actually mailed Daily Prophet newsletters to fans. Oh, wow. And in some of the articles, there were two other songs that J.K. Rowling had created titles for. But no lyrics and, and obviously no music. No, no lyrics. It was only titles. There were no lyrics and really not a sense of the style of song. So before we got the green light, I, I asked, you know, can we take these four songs and can I bring on uh, some individuals to help give some life and, and, and texture to these song titles, come up with some lyrics and then kind of pitch to you uh, a four song set uh, by Celestina. And, <laughs> and they were completely on board. They, they said, well, yeah, give it a try and we'll, we'll let you know if, if we think it works or not. So I hired two amazing musicians and uh, songwriters. And the three of us sat down and created the lyrics based on these song titles that JK had, had come up with. And it is the four songs that exist today in that, in that show. There was this awesome exercise in creating songs that felt real to the wizarding world. The neat thing that I, I really take away from it is, is we've been able to expand on a character that was, that was briefly mentioned in the fiction and, and really give her full form and now a, a breath of content. It strikes me when you're talking about this job that you have, this lane that you created for yourself. One of the coolest things about it is you're really afforded within the context of of this park and the IP and the various IPs you work with a wide creative latitude to do stuff, which I think is really, really cool. How do you balance the responsibility to the IP with this ability to just kind of take this really a character that's barely mentioned in the books, and then blow it out with, as you said, a four-song set or, or the Frog Choir, which shouts to Julian, the uh, the beatboxer at the Frog <laughs> Choir, who's a fine young gentleman, and they do a great job. Hey, how do you balance that? Well, the easiest answer is, is all of us that are involved in this creative process are also are deeply rooted fans of this fiction. So there's a sense of, of um, understanding that responsibility, and that's always present. So anything that you think of, you you have to categorize and almost place into buckets of, is this acceptable? Does this fall within the parameters of the world that has already been created? Because that's the biggest thing to remember is my job is not to reinvent the wheel. My job is to further instill and react to the world that J.K. Rowling has created and thus the visual world that the filmmaker then created after her words. So there's this tiered process that isn't a fine science. It's a lot about just kind of gut feeling Mm. on, on, on really examining the types of concepts that we come up with and making sure that we're not overreaching. 
you just mentioned that tiered process and that that actually segues nicely into into something we wanted to ask you about specifically with the tale of the three brothers because with adapting the tales of beetle the bard particularly the tale of the three brothers there are really multiple levels and degrees of the adaptation that are in play there because that's something that in the actual book harry potter and the deathly hallows people who read that get to experience harry learning about the three brothers and the deathly hallows and then people can go buy harry's school books and they can read the tale of three brothers in the physical copy of the tales of beetle the bard and then they go to watch the movie and they see this absolutely stunning gorgeous animated sequence that totally mesmerized people and then now this is another element another way that this can come to life for people so in that case in particular with the tale of three brothers how do you bring something to life yet again you know time that's already been brought to life before in in a new immensely captivating fashion you know we were really riveted watching this in the park during our visit here in part because it's something that we care about and love so much but in part because it also felt totally new and fresh well the first step in that process we knew the stories existed and we and and again to your your point of how beautifully it is portrayed in the film yeah it's amazing um, with that 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 silhouetted photography they the animate i mean it's just gorgeous so the first thing even deciding if it would work was how can we adapt it what are the methods that we could employ that would keep it, again, in the realm of what people know? And the one beautiful thing about the way J.K. Rowling wrote these stories is rooting them in a style of story that we're all very familiar with, which is fairy tales, morality tales, Aesop's fables, all these things that, that when we were kids, we've grown up with this style of story the, 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 where we're introduced very quickly to characters and it is a, it's a morality tale. And so that format we knew could work as long as we could figure out a way to tell it in, in a visual way on that stage. Mm-hmm. The second aspect of this was really the defining on what, what is the visual palette that we want to be able to create. What you're seeing on a stage is a style of puppetry called Bonroku, right. um, where the puppeteer is visible and the puppets are, are not, not in scale to the performers. Right. The performer is still very apparent to the, mm-hmm. the, um, the audience. And I just felt that was a, a very beautiful way to tell this story. And I think it's the foreword of Tales of Beetle the Bard. She mentions a traveling troupe of wizards mm-hmm. that are performers, that are part of the Wizarding Academy of Dramatic Arts. And it's a single line in the foreword of Tales of Beetle the Bard. I'm like, this is it. Right. This is our troupe. We need to create these characters. And, and, and now we've got our anchor. We, we now have a grounding element to be able to tell these types of stories. So the adaptation, then being able to translate that to a a completely immersive space within the wizarding world and then create these puppets, one of which is, you know, huge. Our death puppet Mm -hmm. is a massive Mm -hmm. puppet that appears. It it was just a really awesome opportunity to stretch some theatrical boundaries that that we don't normally take in theme park settings. That's the one thing I'm really, really proud of about that show. With the nighttime lights and the Christmas experience during the holiday season. You're also again there going, you know, beyond the page, beyond the story to really bring mm-hmm. like a physical space alive for people in a different way than anything that they've experienced before, even if they live in the story in their minds all the time. And we're really curious to know what goes into crafting that kind of ambiance and vibe. What are the keys mm-hmm. to successfully executing something like that where it isn't necessarily about a narrative, it's more about a feeling? Correct. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I love that you pick up on that. That's awesome. It is, it is about a feeling. I was heavily involved in the Christmas at Hogwarts Castle application. Mm-hmm. Our, our sister park in Hollywood, they produced the Nighttime Lights, which is various four houses based. But with both shows, the mentality on how we tackle map projection, especially in the wizarding world, is we did not want the castle to be simply a surface to throw media onto. We wanted the castle to still be a part of the story. And we, as the guests, when we're viewing the castle, we are still in the wizarding world. I am still a villager in Hogsmeade with a distant view of Hogwarts Castle. And for Christmas, the biggest thing as far as for the, the, the Christmas time version of Hogwarts is as soon as you round the corner and you've done it, when you round that corner in Hogsby and see that castle for the very first time, there's this awesome reveal. Oh yeah. Um, it is, it is, it's, it's beautiful. It's majestic. So the, the first thing we threw on the board was what is the view of the castle before the show even starts? 
particularly with the Christmas version, knowing that Hogsmeade is always snow covered, which is beautiful because it's an awesome look for that land. And I'm so glad that the, the creators, the architects went with a snow covered look for Hogsmeade because it's, it's the one we know, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, or that's mainly seen in the films is its snow covered look. But when you're around the corner, Hogwarts is not snow covered, which again is fine. There, there's a, there's a separation there between Hogsmeade and the castle, mm-hmm. but for the holidays, we really wanted when people around the corner that they're going to see Hogwarts Castle also covered in snow for the very first time. Right. So using map projection, we did just that. And that's the first act of our story, being able to see the castle in that sense. And then the other half of the story, frankly, is John Williams' score. Oh, um, yeah. That was the next step in our creative process was figuring out our score first before we did any visuals. Because that really began to evoke the types of visuals in certain moments that we could then kind of leapfrog off of. John Williams' music in those first three films is is amazing. It's beautiful. There's so many different textures running the course of all of those films within his music. So it's literally a playground to be able to work within to try and pick out moments from a musical sense that then automatically started to inform certain visuals. The one thing I can say about any creative process, but especially when we're dealing with, with items within the wizarding world is there's so much good content to pull from. For sure. There's so many things that you can launch off of and expand on. The hard part is trying to find which ones do we want to end on? You know, yeah. which moments out of all of these things do we want to, to land on and really use as part of the formation of the show? That's probably the most difficult part in an exercise is really deciding one over the other. And it's just so much fun. It really is. It's truly a a dream. (laughs) Last question. It struck me as listening to you speak about all these projects is your ability and your department's ability to really marshal all these different storytelling, live storytelling techniques, whether it's live music, Mm -hmm. live singing, light projection, Japanese puppetry traditions, (laughs) live performance. And then one of the things that your reporters be working on now is this new Lagoon show, which will include various elements from the Harry Potter universe, and we'll have film footage and musical elements as well. Give us an idea of what that might be like, and then just talk about like how you decide to use what particular storytelling live performance device when and where. Yeah. Our new nighttime show, Universal Cinematic Celebration, it's located outside of the Wizarding World. It's in our lagoon in the studios, which is a central point in the park overall. And the show is a, it's a 20 minute show that really is a um, culmination of the guest day while spent at Universal Orlando. So not only Wizarding World of Harry Potter, but Jurassic World, Minions, uh, a lot of our DreamWorks animated catalog. So there's a lot of different things in the show. But we knew we wanted two minutes devoted to the Wizarding World, knowing what an impact it is to the guest day when they're at Universal Orlando. So the change in intent on this show compared to The Wizarding World is because this is outside of the story that we're telling when you're inside The Wizarding World, like you were a part of it. This is kind of a third person view. This is a celebration Mm. of the film franchise. Mm -hmm. So we are able to use moments and clips from the catalog of films to be able to create a storyline, to create a moment out there on the water. The first idea that, that really bubbled to the surface for us was we knew we had a lagoon, so the, the best idea that we came up with was, well, what if we turn the lagoon in, into the pensive? And oh, cool. the, the lagoon literally becomes that color motif. Even the, the ink droplets that, that form some of the scenes mm-hmm. in, in the films, how do we create those textures and, and create the lagoon to become the pensive? And then from that, we are literally showing memories from the film franchise. It, so th- that's exactly how we're entering that moment. We move from, from section to section within the Potter world using spells. So you'll hear Wingardium Liviosa spoken by Hermione and the entire lagoon will fill with projected feathers. And then from that, the feeling of flight and motion, we then find clips that, that show flight. Aguamente, there's a whole water-based section of the Potter moment. We have an entire fire section. So we're, we're kind of linking these visuals by way of spell, but still all contained within a pensive type environment. It's been a lot of fun because it's the first time for me that I've been able to use and manipulate clips and moments from the actual film franchise, which is something that we don't do in the Wizarding World because you're living it. You know, you are part of that film at Mm. that point. So I'm I'm really excited about it and I can't wait for, for people to see it. 
That's awesome. Well, we hope to be able to see it one day soon. And thank you for helping to bring the magic into our lives. Everything here is truly wonderful. It's been thrilling for us to be here. Michael Aiello, Senior Director, Entertainment Creative Development. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, I had a blast. It was so great talking with you. Thank you for having me. Thanks and happy birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Y'all have a great day. You You as well. Thank you. Well, friends, regrettably, yes, it's time to head back to King's Cross Station to board the Hogwarts Express and return to the muggle world. No more candy, please. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you were as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again next Monday, mm-hmm. July 9th, when we will be beginning our Prisoner of Azkaban deep dive. Deep, deep. Until then, remember, happiness can be found even in the darkest times if one only remembers to turn on the nighttime lights at Hogwarts. Is that you in the next stall? Will you just... Are you okay? What? I'm trying to drop deuce in here. Are you all right? Do I have to call somebody? Jesus.